Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. And we have launched a subscription service. It's on Patreon, patreon.com slash scuba official. And there are two tiers there to get started. First of all is just a regular support feed where you get this podcast minus any ads that we may decide to put on it at any given moment. And there are also bonus podcasts on that feed. So we've launched with an AMA podcast, which you can get on that Patreon via the initial tier. That's £350 for five bucks if you're in America. And then there's a higher tier for 10 bucks, which gets you access to the Hot Flush promo service, which means you get all the music that we release on Hot Flush and affiliated labels in advance in high quality download format. So if you're a DJ, it's just a great promo list to be on. And there will be additional stuff that we will be adding over the coming weeks and months. There are things like Zoom seminars that I want to get going to discuss the issues that we talk about on the podcast a little bit further, but obviously we need to build up a little bit of an audience before we start doing that. But as it stands, it's just those two tiers. The initial one really is what I'm asking you to do the most. I would be extraordinarily grateful. We're trying to build an audience here. We need some budget to support that. So we want to do some advertising. We want to build out the show as best we can, build up the audience. It's going to help us get more high profile guests. And I'll be doing more bonus podcasts too, in addition to the AMA ones. So yeah, if you could afford it, then get involved in any way you can. Patreon.com slash scuba official. This is episode 30 and we have none other than Dubfire on the show. He is someone who I've been a big fan of since his days in Deep Dish. I was a huge Deep Dish fan. Loved their original productions as well as their remixes, of course. And he has had a great career since Deep Dish, of course, as well. Made some amazing stripped back, minimal adjacent techno stuff. And obviously he's an extremely busy DJ and a guy who just lives the lifestyle of the road and traveling and parties and he's been doing it for a few decades now and is still going extremely strong still absolutely at the top so it's great to have him on we get into some similar uh topics as discussed with levon vincent on last week's episode that is to say the club scene in new york because he was very much involved in that 90s new york club scene as we discover and lots more discussed as well over the course of two hours or so. So just before we get into it, my weekly reminder to leave us a review or a rating. Obviously, if you're on Patreon, you don't have to do that. But if you're not on Patreon, the best way you can support us is by leaving a review or a rating wherever you're listening to this podcast. Hit that five-star button. Join us on the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. There is a private area now for Patreon members. If you're a member of the Discord prior to this, you will be automatically in that area. So for early adopters, doesn't matter if you're a Patreon subscriber or not, you'll be in that Discord server. But generally, that's a Hot Flush Recordings Discord. So if you want to talk about anything to do with Hot Flush, you can do it in there too. That's hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. And finally, follow the Spotify playlist. Link in the show notes to that. All the music we talk about the show and all the episodes and everything else. So 
without further delay, here is Dubfire. Dubfire, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. I'm good. <laughs> been been a while since uh, since we spoke and uh, and we saw each other. But like we we do try to keep in touch by sending each other music, which uh, which helps right. keep keep the connection. Yeah, absolutely. So we were just chatting off mic about uh, about shows and uh, getting back into the the swing of touring. Yeah, I. I, I, I wanted to pick your brain because you had stopped for a while. Um, I don't recall the, the reasons specifically, and I don't recall if we had, ever had a conversation about it. Um, but uh, I was supposed to play with an artist um, on Friday, uh, and he ended up having to, and it was his branded night, and we were playing back to back, and he canceled kind of at the last minute, a couple days before. Um, with no real reason given to anyone. And then when, when I spoke to him, when I just checked in with him about it, he said it had a lot to do with like anxiety and stress. Right. Um, and I just wonder if we're seeing more and more of this now uh, coming out of the pandemic, you know, and what your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, so basically so with my thing, like um, I took what was supposed to be like a solid year off which was 2019, right? But that obviously turned into three years off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, which was kind of, um, it's very strange actually, because like uh, coming out of those three years, you know, I'm totally institutionalized now into sort of a non-touring lifestyle. Yeah. And I was actually, I was, I was talking to this about, uh, talking to Chris Leaving about this, about this, this topic and how the, the pandemic kind of, um, imposed this period of rest upon, um, you know, those of you, <laughs> I say you these days, those of you who really get are deep into that super hectic touring lifestyle, which, which I did for, for a long period, actually. I mean, it was a, it was a good, like at least seven or eight years where I was doing a hundred plus shows a year and just doing the whole thing. And what I found during that period was that if you're kind of in the lifestyle you just sort of get used to it and it just becomes reality. But when I tried to start cutting down, that's kind of when it, it started hitting me a little bit more. So I try, I, I kind of, in, in 2018, I tried to kind of like scale it back and, and play less. And I actually, if I found that, if anything, to be more mentally challenging than just going at it as hard as I could, just because going from one mindset to the other was just for some reason that, that much more challenging. And then coming out of... The, I think coming out of the coming back into the touring thing from the pandemic, like what you were just what you were just describing about how I think maybe maybe it's hitting people now in a way that that it wasn't before. It's like it is that kind of transitional thing of like, okay, well, actually, this is an extremely challenging lifestyle, and if you're not used to it, then then it can really cause cause a lot of problems. But but like I said, like I think once you're in it then it's, it's definitely manageable. But well, how, do you, how do you see it? I guess uh, there's also, there seems to be, um, I mean, when IMS uh, launches kind of a uh, healthy, healthier and kind of lifestyle-focused version of IMS, um, where, where the emphasis is on mental well-being, um, you, you, I think it, it makes people be able to talk about it more and acknowledge it. Um, 
I think we've all grappled with that in one way or another uh, since we started, since we had our first kind of brush with success. Um, there, you know, I, I, there are many times to this day where before certain shows, I suffer like severe anxiety. You know, sometimes that has to do with like, maybe your laptop has not been working properly. Like the last few shows, you've had some issues um, with it, you know, with the audio freezing or things like that. So sometimes it's like trivial. I mean, it, it's not trivial when you're in front of like thousands of people and you don't know if your laptop's gonna uh, give out on you or whatever, but sometimes it's like, rooted in in trivial things like the technology failing um and other times it's like um creatively like you know maybe if you know a certain artist that's playing before you you know what that style is you don't know if you're going to be able to like deliver in the same way that the artist before you has and and is doing maybe they're they're a bigger artist they have a uh you know bigger profile than you at that moment so like it can kind of rear its ugly head in, in a you know, variety of different ways. So um, we, and I think we've, we've all grappled with that and we, we have ways that we cope with that. Um, sure. I try to take my mind off of it um, just by making playlists. Like I become obsessed with like making playlists, like digging into the crates, so to speak, like with my music library, which I've carried over um, from one, uh, laptop to another. Everything is on the laptop. Um, so I just bury myself in that. And then when I come out of that mode of preparing all these playlists um, so that I, musically I can go in any direction I, I need to, that gives me like the confidence I need to, to tackle the night without all that, like that black cloud of anxiety hanging overhead. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think like, what you're talking about there, I guess, is is more like performance anxiety, yeah, right, which is quite a specific thing, um, and I and I guess sometimes that can be a symptom of a kind of a more underlying sense of kind of of of, of that sort of, of those sorts of anxiety, yeah, um, or anxiety adjacent problems that that you know that everyone is you know, prone to regardless of, yeah. you know, what you do for a living. Um, I think it ties into like career anxiety uh, can extend to performance anxiety and, and all sorts of different. Yeah. I mean, it comes out in different ways, right? Yeah, exactly. So, but just to go back to your, your original, original question, <laughs> why did I stop touring or why did I feel like I needed a break? Yeah. It wasn't directly because... Well, I, well, I suppose it was it was related to this, yeah. I mean, I definitely felt like I had, I, I definitely felt like I needed a break, and there were definitely periods on the road where I felt like, God, like this is a bit too much now, and I didn't want it to get to the point where it was like, you know, the kind of, you know, the, the escape hatch had to be pulled, you know, yeah. <laughs> like it was like I wanted to get ahead of it a little bit, yeah. Um, um, but like I said, I didn't definitely didn't intend to take three years off, and and I definitely feel now that getting back into it has been harder than I anticipated. Like I really feel, well, I mean, at the, at the end of last year, I really felt like I wasn't, I just didn't feel ready to go back into playing every weekend at all, and it's gradually got to the point where now I feel like, yeah, okay, I'm, not, as I mentioned off mic, like I've got fairly busy August, and I like go into into the autumn, I think it will be be a bit more. <laughs> 
bit more regular and then with half an eye on doing a, something approaching a full schedule next year. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's definitely, um, it's, it's not straightforward mentally, you know, <laughs> you no. know, like the preparation, the preparation for that. Yeah. And you're absolutely I mean, that, right. How many, yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to ask, like, how many years have you been doing it now? The full thing? Uh, I, I was playing house parties in the mid to late eighties and before I was even old enough to drink, I, I started playing, I had a fake ID. So I started, um, with various club residencies, like in the, in the very early nineties, um, maybe late eighties, 80, 89, 90. Um, mm-hmm. so what, 30 years nearly almost. And how much of that has been, how much of that has been involving like the regular travel as well? We, I think it was 95 uh, or 1996 when we first came to the UK. And that really like before that we were playing uh, mainly in North America, uh, Canada, Um, very little in South America at that time. Really, it kind of exploded for us like between 95, 96 when um, the the remix that we did for DeLacy's Hideaway kind of exploded in a yeah yeah of course in a big way in in the in the UK yeah and back then the UK I remember it well yeah yeah, yeah the, the the what was happening in the UK back then really dictated um, what what was like what was happening musically uh, around the world um, we we really looked uh, at achieving success in the UK. Um, to try to, you know, win, uh, you know, the fans in the USA, which is where we were from, which is funny. I mean, like when you, when you look back to documentaries, like of, you know, the, the Beatles or Led Zeppelin or whatever, like that, they were trying to conquer America. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> the grass is always greener, I guess. No, it's really funny you say that because, you know, 95, it's not long after this whole thing was at the inception point. Right. So, you know, we talk about, you know, House and Techno being being born in in Chicago and Detroit in the late 80s, mid to late 80s. But like if if like by the mid 90s, North North American artists are really looking to the UK, like that's that's a pretty quick turnaround. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, how like can you give me give me some more on that? Because I mean, that's not something that I would necessarily have thought immediately. I mean, the UK, the the producers at the time in the UK, rave culture. I mean, we 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 did have raves in the USA as well, but like I think in the UK, you guys kind of took it up a notch. Um, and there was also ecstasy. I mean, the, the drugs were part and parcel to 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 how the scene develop especially in the UK um Mm -hmm. but you know and and you guys had like I mean we had our magazines uh that covered dance music um in the USA but like there was there was just there seemed to be the the UK had always felt to me for years um like they were like maybe a decade ahead of everyone else in terms of the dance music culture maybe not necessarily musically, but in terms of like the spread of dance music culture uh, and, and how it was um, embraced by the masses. Um, In America, there were fringe little scenes, you know, in, in the UK, it was like Mm -hmm. a mega thing. Um, So we were always looking across the pond to see what was happening there. And I think the way in which um, UK based producers took 
what was happening in the USA um, and, and gave it their own spin and sold it back to us had a lot to do with how we were influenced back then, especially Sharam and I. I mean, especially, well, both of us really, but uh, especially me, I was really always, while I, I was a huge fan of like Detroit techno, Chicago house um, and New York house, they were all very distinct in, in their styles. I was firmly um, looking uh, at what was happening in the UK, collecting all those imports, um, and uh, really, really becoming heavily influenced uh, by that whole scene. You know, the, the early hardcore stuff was a huge influence, drum and bass. Um, mm. It was, there, there was so, there, there seemed to be an explosion of creativity and a lot of it was happening. A lot of these sounds felt like sounds that we'd never, and we really didn't hear before. They were all happening for the first time because um, people were, were getting really deep into the technology, into the culture. And uh, everybody seemed like they, they had something to say creatively. Um, and I was just actually at this festival in Poland that I just played um, on Saturday night. Uh, David Guetta was playing in the other stage and we're very old friends. So I, I went backstage to hang with him before his set. And we were just talking about how, uh, how long we've been doing this and uh, how difficult it is for um, young producers today because there's so many... DJs like DJ culture is bigger than ever, and now it's not like you have musicians uh, or producers or, or just DJs uh, who, who want to become like superstar DJs. You have like influencers and bloggers and um, you know your, your best friend <laughs> who's never <laughs> who's never expressed any uh, interest in what you've done uh, until now. Um, so DJing is like a thing now. Uh, and back then, there were very few people um, doing it, and the people that were doing it um, were 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 the people that kind of paved the the way forward for for everyone today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, just with the going going back to the kind of UK cultural side of it. Um, I mean, it's interesting you say that because I mean it's. Like I have thought, like many times over the years, that the kind of the like, sort of the attributing of like techno to Detroit and house to Chicago and New York is just quite sort of reductive, you know, and it it does sort of like oversimplify things um, in a way which is actually not massively useful if you're actually really trying to understand it. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're kind of absolutely right to say that like so much like experimentation was happening, not just in the UK, but I mean, in other parts of Europe as well. But I mean, I think UK was like, it was ground zero for like the cultural explosion of it. I think it's probably, probably fair to say. Right. And I think particularly like with, exactly. with like rave culture, especially correct, um, distinct from club culture. You know that whole kind of thing of like out outdoors, like you know, you the, the whole cliche of like driving around the M25, like finding out where the rave is, and you know, mm -hmm. it's some enormous thing with um with early hardcore, <laughs> early hardcore <laughs> playing. Like I'm a little bit too young to have experienced that, unfortunately. But I mean, mm -hmm. those those stories are just absolutely legendary, and um, so much of the culture is based upon that kind of narrative and those kind of that kind of mythology. Mm -hmm. You know, um. And I think quite a lot of what, um, quite a lot of like the festival landscape, particularly in the U, the, like dance music festivals in the US now, I think are actually based upon that mythology to a large extent. Um, 
and there, I think there was an there was a kind of equivalent going on in the US, and and we're going to get on to. Um, well, I, well, one of the things I want to do in this conversation is to get into a little bit of detail on um, on early nineties club culture in, in the US because I had Lavon Vincent on the show last week and we talked about New York in in some detail, mm-hmm. uh, and I want to get get an alternative perspective from that. Mm-hmm. Um, but but just the way that um, yeah, like like Electric Daisy and all, the, all those whole things that with with which are. You know the the prototype of those things is definitely an M twenty five rave, mm-hmm. you know. But it's just kind of like taken, uh, you know, up a few notches, you know, on the kind yeah. of like neon, <laughs> neon the, scale. The people, right? the people in the USA definitely, uh, and for years after it had already exploded, uh, dressed funnier than you lot, right, 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 right. <laughs> in the UK. So, <laughs> yeah. and still do to an extent. Yeah, yeah. right, right, yeah. Totally. Um, in fact, we talked about, yeah. <laughs> talked about that with Yvonne and he was completely unaware about this new trend of, um, you know, the kind of whole bunny, like the bunny rabbit trend. As, as I <laughs> anyway, look, before we get into that, I want to talk about something else. Though. I want to talk about your new album ah. because you just announced it. And one of the things we've talked about on the show uh, repeatedly, actually, I've asked almost everyone these questions that I'm about to ask you concern the album format, mm-hmm. right? So, um, so you've just announced it, it's called Evolve. It's coming out in October. Um, but my question to you is, why would you release an album in 2022? Like, is is the is the format in of itself still something which is well? Well, how do you see the format in, in 2022? How has it how has it changed for you over the years? Because it's definitely a different thing to uh, you know to, 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 the, to the traditional you know traditional way people see that format. So tell me about it. Yeah, I mean, when I was in Deep Dish, um, I really felt free to want to express like every side of what I was into musically within the album format. But after I went solo, I really questioned, I mean, the obvious thing, obvious thing to have done like within the first five years of me going solo was to work towards like an album, but I almost rebelled against it. Um, from the very beginning, all I was concerned about was, um, but basically making dance floor bombs, you know, I figured, Mm -hmm who wants to hear my version of uh, kind of a Radiohead-ish type of song or like my version of like something Massive Attack would do or, or you know, on an album format um, just so I can try to prove to everybody that I'm, I'm an artist to be taken seriously. I just felt like a lot of dance music albums were just that, were, were people who were having some sort of a, an identity crisis or, or suffering from like imposter syndrome, right. trying to, to win some sort of perceived credibility and to be taken seriously as like an artist. And I saw right through a lot of that. There's very few electronic music albums that you can point to, to say like, oh, this album like changed my life. Um, and so I, I, I had many conversations. You just had Chris leaving on the show. Um, now I, Chris has been a friend for a very long time. Uh, he was really there when I first went solo, when I was very unsure about where I wanted to go musically initially. 
Um, and then when I was sure, he was like a good sounding board. Um, and uh, I've had a lot of conversations with Chris about the album format in particular. And um, the, the advice that he gave me, and I was fully not prepared to ever record an album uh, as a solo artist. But when he was um, working on the, on, the, on the stuff for the first Mute album, um, we had a lot of conversations about it because I, I kept playing devil's advocate and questioning, you know, why, why do you want to do an album? Or why do you want it to sound like this when you know, everybody who goes to hear you play out, they hear you play a certain style of music. And when you say you're releasing an album, that's the style that they want from you. Um, and he basically told me, look, um, I've made a collection of songs and these songs feel like they belong together. Um, and they all kind of share a similar vibe, uh, stylistically as well. And so to me, that feels like a natural, uh, you know, album expressive kind of thing that I, that I want to, to kind of share with others or whatever. So he just felt like he made a collection of songs that belong together. And, and there you go. That's, that's why you do an album. Um, you know, there's, there's others, you know, other bands like Pink Floyd and, and Radiohead who, who really take great care in, in how they program and, and release like an album. Like it's a concept, you know, from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. And I think Chris developed that concept, um, over time um and and he had it kind of nailed when when he was releasing his album and for me um i never wanted to do an album but when i started to work on a few tracks that shared a, a certain sensibility it just naturally organically started to take me in that direction and then I started to think about what I was finishing off um, as something that could be an album, that I could collect as an album. But it was never, my intention was never to, to, to try to be versatile, overly versatile. Like, right. I never thought, okay, well, I, I have to have an ambient intro and an ambient outro. Um, I have to do something like left field or with broken beats or whatever. I was like, I mean, this is the, this this is the classic mistake that dance music albums fall into, right? You get a producer who's known for one thing, and then he feels like he has to, he or she feels like they have to, you know, cover some bases because it's an album, right? And it so often doesn't work, like you said. No, and no one, no, it, it, you know, and I've asked my friends who've done that over the years, like, why do you, why do you feel like you need to do that? And I, I have friends to this day who are sending me things that they're. Um, working on for an album and, and just the other day I'm not going to name the, the producer but the producer's engineer is a good friend uh, who I've worked with and he sent it to me because he's working on it and I'm like what what is this trying to be <laughs> you know it's like um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's it's so far removed from what that artist represents musically to, to everyone uh, including themselves, like why? Why are they doing this? So I'm always like asking the question, like why? Why do you want to record an album, and why do you want to do that style? Um, so what I did with this is, I just collected what would be like a series of twelve inches singles, whatever, um, into an album. Um, and the way we're doing it is, we're releasing like eight of the songs 
before we drop the album, and the album's gonna have a few bonus tracks, which are still aimed at the dance floor, which are not like weird um, things that have been mm. left over from the recording sessions. So um, I think stylistically, sonically, these collection of tracks belong together, and that's why I'm kind of doing that. And and the flip side to that as well is it it's a it, it would be a, it's a clever. I mean, just to be perfectly frank and honest, it's it's like a, a good marketing strategy. Um, it gives yep. something um, for the for the promoters to kind of plug and and market um, for for the shows. You can build a tour around it, which uh, I, I was working towards with uh, with my new visual team, uh, who are based uh, Dublab, who are based in Lisbon, and. Um, it gives me an opportunity to do something um, not quite on the scale that I was doing with, with the hybrid shows, uh, but something that's sort of an enhanced audiovisual uh, experience um, yep. that we could market. Um, and it could tie directly into uh, this album. Because when we were doing those hybrid shows, there was nothing out there for, for us to market and sell. It was literally just the show. and. Uh, and I, I realized quickly that um, it would have been better to have like some product out there. But that's not why I was doing, that's not why I'm doing Evolve at all. Sure. You're completely correct in that it absolutely makes sense in like the, from, from, a, from a PR perspective, from a touring perspective, from basically anything to do with, the, with a sort of like public facing perception um, of, of an artist to do an album campaign and that actually hasn't changed at all in 40 years to be quite mm. honest <laughs> the things that the thing that has changed um, is the way that people listen to music and it's I've remarked upon this on the show before like the, the music industry has a has a weird kind of inertia to it right so the, so the big seismic changes in the market but there's just bits of the industry which just take <laughs> seemingly forever to to kind of like it's like turning around an oil tanker right it's they just kind of like <laughs> don't don't respond to these things but it almost doesn't matter because you know if 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 certain moving parts in the in, in the industry work in a certain way then then it makes sense fr from a certain perspective to you know to work with them in the way that you've just described right so 100 percent from a from a touring perspective makes sense to structure a campaign around an album completely does mm -hmm. but in terms of the way that people listen to music that 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 side of it has has changed and that's why presumably you're doing you're structuring the campaign as you are by you know releasing singles and and, and building up to a to a bigger product which mm -hmm. of which most of the music has already been out right yeah and you know since announcing the album I, i've listened to well, I've seen the, the kind of comments and stuff. Um, and people do get excited when you announce an album. It becomes like kind of this ev event. Um, but you're absolutely correct in, in terms of like the way people um, listen to music these days. I mean, people make their own. You can make easily make your own. I, I do it all the time. Uh, you make your own kind of compilations of, you know, your favorite artists, uh, and, and you choose your favorite songs from all of their albums. And, and you make, to you, to, for you, you make the perfect album. So I'm sure people will dissect uh, my kind of, um, my, my entire kind of body of work in the same way. 
which will include this new album. You know, they'll pick out their favorite songs. The, there are certain songs that they may not, not like, and um, they'll they'll have their own kind of listening experience. They'll, their their own version of um, me. You know, so um, yeah, sure. You know, I'm I'm not blind to that, but you can't worry about um, how. There, there's certain things that you can control and then there's obviously you can't really control maybe in, in some way you can control like the, the listening experience but how much do you want to do that or does it make sense to do that um, why why would you try to I mean we, we exert so much control over how we produce how it's released um, and why would you want to extend that to like how people uh, listen to it, or do you? I mean, it's a question. I'm, I'm, I'm actually asking myself. I'm thinking out loud about it. Yeah. You know, certain directors, obviously, you know, like uh, Quentin Tarantino when he released uh, Hateful Eight, he filmed it in 70 millimeter, and he wanted only, you know, theaters that are equipped to to you know show it in 70 millimeter to be able to do so. And he ran into a lot of issues that way. So, um, but you know that people do feel compelled to, to do that as well, to like make sure that- it's That's the equivalent of the vinyl only release, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, correct. <laughs> yeah, correct. <laughs> Which I don't know if, uh, yeah, if that makes sense. That's just frustrating for people, you know, who uh, have to spend time then to digitize it. And, it is. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> mine, mine will not be a vinyl only release. But you know, like uh, just to kind of cap this off, um, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I may be a seasoned veteran in the industry, but I, I still feel like I'm feeling my way forward because of, of the constantly rapid changing nature of our industry. Um, mm. And not, sometimes not knowing what's going to happen uh, can serve to inspire quite a bit. You know, your accidents are going to happen. Uh, you're going to have unintended um, consequences, um, and and those can can be the sparks of you know new creativity, untapped creativity. So yeah, I, I mean, absolutely, um, and that's part of what makes it so fun and also so enduring. You know, I think um, it's got to be fun. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, why why are we doing? Yeah, this? well, that's, that's it. Well, yeah, I mean, you know what? Just going back to that question about why why I had to take a break from touring, it, it actually had stopped being fun. And you know, when it becomes when it feels like a job, that's that's when you know you got to you got to do something else, right? Because this shouldn't it shouldn't feel like a job at all. Yeah, I mean, you, you know what? You know why for a lot of DJs it's not become fun anymore because we're all playing like this comparison game with social media and how. Uh, ingrained it is now not not just in our culture not not just in dance music but like in, in, in general I mean there's a lot of DJs Chris actually stopped following uh, pretty much all DJs <laughs> and festivals and clubs right because it was it was a constant source of frustration and stress to see like and we all do this like we're looking at who this person or that person um you, we look at where they're playing and where we're not. Right. And then we're hassling our agents 
um, about why we're not doing those same events. And it turns into this thing where you're every day you're looking at the feed and you're looking at all these cool uh, events that you're not playing. And it's, that starts to affect your mental uh, well-being as well. And, what, and what's crazy is that that never stops, right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter how big you get, there's it never always stops. someone yeah. above you, yeah. right? It's like, you know, like like Paul McCartney is probably sitting there thinking, oh, I wish I was Bob Dylan or whoever. Do you know what I mean? It's like there is almost, yeah. almost no one who is in a position, or probably literally no one, because Bob Dylan is probably, you know, has some equivalent... Um, he's probably thinking about like you know Chuck Berry or someone you know that he wishes he was yeah you know so like there is literally no escape from that yeah and like accepting it in some kind of a way um, is such an important step but it's so difficult to do and particularly like you said with with social media and it's just in your face all the time like 24-7 and these platforms are so compelling like I, I did a really good job of taking them off my phone for ages and then they kind of just you're just like eh, maybe i'll just put it on because i need to post this one thing and then it like it stays on and like like and before you know it you're like you know it's it's two in the morning and you're scrolling through instagram it's like oh what, what have i become yeah i mean um zach dvs1 uh he has completely stayed off of it and he kind of he mentors young producers getting into the game on the benefits of not feeling like you have to be a part of that, uh, that whole social media kind of uh, struggle. Um, yep. And, um, you know, uh, you have people like DJ Kose, who only does a certain amount of shows. Um, he's kind of realized over the years, like, and I haven't had any deep conversations with him about it, but he kind of lives off the grid. Um, and uh, he does a certain number of shows that he feels like he can handle very well. And that's enough. He has no aspirations to, to try to play as many shows or, or play at the biggest festivals or, or get the biggest fees or have top billing or whatever like that. He, he's just not, certain people are just not wired to want to pursue all those things. And the pursuit of, of all those things isn't going to necessarily make you more successful and especially happier uh, and and more adjusted as a human being. So it's certainly not going to make you happier. No, because I mean, happiness happiness is largely defined by being content with what you've got, right? Correct. So if you're if you're if you're constantly <laughs> uh, if you're constantly like aspiration is the enemy of ha- happiness, probably. Yeah. Which is a quite, a, I don't know if that's, a, that's kind of a depressing way of putting it, but I mean, I think there's definitely something in that. But I think with um, with with new artists in particular, like the, the degree to which that social media is just embedded in everything now, I think taking a taking a decision not to do it at all is just a huge like undertaking you know i think you're you're adding yeah so much to like this the uncertainty about whether your career will be a success or not if you don't do it i mean there are obviously people who have done it successfully i mean like uh, like helena house springs to mind as someone who's broken through relatively recently without any kind of social media presence but like um i can't think of too many more people who have done that certainly not people not people who have come through you know maybe post 
like 2014, 15, whatever. The, well, I, yeah, I guess like 2012 to 2015 was the kind of the period at which it really just became a complete necessity, I think. Yeah. Something, something, and, something like that. Yeah. And there, there's people that, like, you can tell they're really going overboard and they're really trying um, to create, like, a certain image on social media. And then there are other people like, uh, like Kieran, like Fortet, who the way they do it feels very natural, like a, a, a natural um, extension of how they are as artists. You know, they're kind of, they're using it as a tool and not as like the way in which uh, their entire career is kind of expressed, um, yep. the artistic side. Um, so, you know, and then there's people like, like Helena doesn't have an Instagram page, right? I, I, I don't think she does. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, and, um, and yeah, and the, the, there's others that, uh, have stayed off of it. It's much easier if you never, like it's it's much harder if you've been on it to then just kind of drop out. Um, yeah. But if you've never been on, then 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 there's no expectation. I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a there must be a generational aspect to it too. Yeah. Because I think like for for the generation of young kids now, they're so they must be so used to just the concept of the internet celebrity. And people establishing their personalities via these platforms, whether it's, you know, on YouTube or you know, now TikTok and, you know, just, I mean, the, the depth and kind of obscurity of some of these TikTok stars, which as a pretty, uh, well, <laughs> pretty aging guy these days, it, it's, it's for me, it's like, <laughs> it's pretty baffling, which it must, I imagine it must be for you too. <laughs> Some of the uh, some of the stuff which which gets traction, I mean, particularly on TikTok. But then, what I found that having engaged with TikTok a bit, a little bit, it didn't take me too long actually to get a pretty good understanding of why a lot of that stuff is is compelling. You know, I found myself you know scrolling through like mm-hmm. like reaction videos, which are unbelievably entertaining. You know, it's mm-hmm. just like watching videos of people watching other videos. <laughs> doesn't sound great on paper but like yeah. it really it really is quite quite compelling right yeah. i mean yeah anyway let's not get too bogged down in in <laughs> in, uh, in social media Thank God. Uh, i yeah. want to talk about new york clubs i want to talk about the east coast right because you're from dc yeah right yeah were you were you born there no i was born in um a city called mashad in iran Oh, were you? Okay, right. I knew you were yeah. of Iranian heritage, but I didn't realize you were born there. Right, okay. So when did you move to the States? Yeah, and like I think it was early 1978, my father went to the USA um, to, to study at university. He was pursuing his PhD at American University in Washington, D.C. And that was right around the time where there was some, some turmoil uh, kind of brewing in uh in iran (laughs) right yeah um (laughs) uh to put it mildly um and then the following year uh obviously we we knew that there was going to be like a full-scale revolution and and to make a long story short my father kind of summoned um us to the usa to kind of just you know pack our things and, and and move over and and escape what was happening there and we ended up just uh kind of staying and um starting from scratch. I mean, we, we were like middle class in, uh, in Iran. Uh, and when we came to the USA, obviously we, we, we were cut off from, 
from our finances uh, and we kind of we I would categorize my upbringing as as relatively like a poor upbringing in the USA mm. um, and we just kind of um, we did like a, an apartment you know kind of a very bleak kind of apartment housing complex area um, and you know I just uh, I tried to assimilate we all did uh, as best we could in, in American society and it wasn't easy at first uh, with the culture and the language and the fact that Iranians were, were really really hated because of the hostage crisis right um, right yeah okay but somehow uh, yeah I mean we were really really I remember there were cars with bumper stickers uh, of like Mickey Mouse kind of giving the finger to like Iran like the words Iran or Wow. Or the you know the outline of the, the country and or the flag or whatever. So there was there was a lot of like uh, anti-Iranian sentiment uh, visible um, on the streets, and uh, mm. and we felt it, and we we tried to just kind of like not focus on that and and try to assimilate as best we could. There there are many times where I was ashamed to say I was Iranian right. for fear of like how I would be perceived. Um, so it was, it was a difficult time, but, um, yeah. And, um, you know, fast forward <laughs> to, uh, you mentioning New York, uh, obviously New York was only, um, a three and a half hour drive. So I spent a lot of time going up to the city, um, going to all those early clubs, Sound Factory, Sound Factory Bar, Shelter, NASA. Uh, save the robots as many parties as I could just to kind of take in what was happening there because it was so close and uh, kind of bringing the experience. Sorry, I was just going to ask you that what, mm. what drew you to that in the first place? So what kind of musical background were you coming from? I was, um, I was kind of an introverted uh, kid when I was younger. I, I, I was hanging around like a lot of the uh, alternative kids, um, the, the people in school that were into like photography um, art, uh, music. Uh, a lot of the the people I hung with were playing in bands, like local punk bands. Um, you know, I was heavily into alternative music, new wave, uh, punk rock. Um, there was a huge uh, punk scene in DC, there, and, and there was a, a record store called Yesterday and Today Records where a lot of those artists either worked or hung out in. Um, people like Dave Grohl from Foo Fighters, Ian McKay from Minor Threat and Fugazi, Guy, the singer from Fugazi, he worked there. Um, so I, I, I would just spend countless hours there just um, going through the racks, getting uh, tipped off uh, from all the people that worked there on not just lo the local music that was coming out on Discord and other labels, but uh, you know all this amazing music from around the world that was coming through, including like um, you know all the stuff, uh, the dub reggae stuff, which a lot of the punks were into. Um, hmm. So that that kind of you know there's a local record store uh, record uh, label called uh, I believe it was Ariwa, I think Ariwa was or no Ross, I'm thinking Ross, and uh, they were putting out like incredible reggae and dub. Um, from artists from around the world, Matt Professor released a lot on on Ross Records, um, and right. 
and then I, I started to discover like the On You Sound catalog and, and I got heavy, heavy, heavy into everything Adrian Sherwood was doing, not just with, you know, the, the dub artists uh, or, or African Head Charge, but like the stuff he was doing with, with um, you know, because of his association with Daniel Miller. He was working on Depeche Mode records and everything was, you could draw a line from one genre to the other, um, yeah. a very short line. Uh, everything seemed kind of interconnected in some weird way either it was it was that way in my mind or or really that way like 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 it was intended to be um and it was just like a a very um a very amazing like an amazing time for just like being a sponge and absorbing everything and then eventually getting into like the the wax track stuff um uh, being a fan of like Front Two Four Two, all the electronic body music stuff that um, right, yeah. led led me to a lot of like the, the early new beat um, sound, and obviously being in in the USA, I, we had a local record store called Twelve Inch Dance Records that I would go to regularly, and I was being exposed to everything that was happening in New York, Detroit, and Chicago, plus all the imports that were coming in from especially the UK, all the white labels. You know, back then it was all about like the white label. <laughs> that was like, yeah. if, you were a, if you were a local DJ, especially in, in the DC area and you're playing white labels and usually the, the venues that you're playing at, the people are right up against like the, the, the right, DJ right. booth area. <laughs> and so they're looking at what you're doing, you know? So if you're playing a white label or if you're playing like a, uh, an old Detroit underground resistance record inside out <laughs> um, it's blowing their minds you know so uh, yeah it was it was just the constant search for whatever was happening next and how did you get into well um, so you you mentioned that you started going up to New York going to clubs mm-hmm. um, were you beginning to DJ at that point or what was the level of your involvement I was, I, I never thought about DJing as like, uh, have, you know, as far as like a professional career, because my parents were mm. quite traditional and they were just steering me away from that. Um, right. It was relatively unheard of for a you know, Persian household to kind of steer their kids into like the direction that I was wanting to go <laughs> right. in. You know, they just wanted us to be like uh, engineers or lawyers or doctors or whatever. Um, a, you know, someone with a respectable uh, career. Um, yeah, and, and completely understandably, right? <laughs> understandably, I guess. Um, so in the beginning, uh, it, it, the, the situation with me and my family was kind of tense, um, but it wasn't much later uh, when Sharam and I started to have some chart success. And back then, I was actually talking to David Guetta about this too the other night, like back then you were you would make more money doing like remixes. Um, yep. And... and you know, getting advances for like uh, original music than you were like as as DJs. So we spent a lot of time in the studio making music as opposed to DJing, and we were doing quite well uh, in those early years, like financially, to where we could like both quit our day jobs. And when we were able to do that, um, and when our family saw that um, there was international like recognition of what we were doing and we were able to like support ourselves without their help that's when they kind of backed off a little bit 
<laughs> yeah, I mean that's yeah, that's that's pretty cool. I mean, like the the first time I remember it very well. The first time my parents took me seriously in terms of a musician was the first time we went for dinner, and I paid for I paid the check. You know, it was, then it was <laughs> that it was that that, that took it right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, I mean, everything just kind of uh, escalated very gradually. From from it wasn't like the kind of overnight success that a lot of um, young so-called DJs today are experiencing. So right, um, yeah. So 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 okay. Let's just just slow it down a little bit. So, um, so you're as you mentioned, you're playing house parties and and going up to New York and, and going to going to clubs. So yeah, um, what year are we talking here? Which where are we in the uh, lineage? I think um, we're talking about like 1990, 91, 92. Um, okay, so so what? So tell me tell me about the the club landscape that you found yourself in in New York when you when you made it up there. What were the big clubs? What was going on? Yeah, well, there was Sound Factory, obviously. Um, there was uh, later. There was Twilo. Uh, there was Shelter. I never made it to. There was um, uh, Danceteria, Palladium. Mm. Um, there was just so many incredible clubs. Like the club ruled in in those times, and nowadays it's the complete opposite. It's like clubs are, you know, fast becoming like kind of an outdated concept. Um, right, it's and, all and festivals have taken over. Yeah, it's all festivals. Um, so yeah, I, I, it just felt like um, it, the the club was amazing because it was like this controlled space. Um, you could really control the atmosphere in, in a confined club uh, much yeah. better than you could like in an outdoor rave, so to speak. Sure. So um, there was a lot of attention and care to the details of that atmosphere, namely like the sound system. So in New York, the first thing you'd notice is what well, was always the, the sound systems and how clean they sounded um, and, and how minimal. I mean, there was no like LED <laughs> Um, displays right. it was it was the, the magic atmosphere was created with sound with smoke and with lights so it was how you manipulated those elements and and how seriously you took each of those elements that contributed uh, a great deal to to the legend uh, that a lot of these early clubs had um, and have maintained over the years you know so it was a special time. Yeah. 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 I mean, let me ask a question about that because a, a lot of the kind of legendary DJs from back then and a lot of the kind of legendary stories revolve around those kind of super long open to close sets. Correct. Um, but from a sort of up and coming DJ perspective, like if, if that's the environment, it's, it's pretty difficult to break into that, I imagine, right? Because who's going to trust you to play an open to close set? Uh, a big club so so tell me a little bit about like breaking into the dj scene as it were was it was it through your music did did it come that way or was there a sort of process of like establishing yourself as a as a dj in of in as in of itself i mean initially i was establishing myself as a dj locally mm. uh but we knew the only way to break out of the local scene was was through the the music that we would make that would be appreciated on a global scale, um, especially that would be 
you know, covered like in the in the UK music press. Um, right. It was it was all about getting that review or being in in those DJ charts. Uh, right. And that that kind of that that dictated uh, whether you know you're you're going to have like a successful global career or not. Sure. Like the amount of attention that you were getting in in the UK music press. So our intention initially to break out of, um, you know, just being local DJs was to, to make music that would be appreciated and covered in the UK music press. Literally, that was the, oh, the that's, goal. That's, that's super interesting. <laughs> I, I never would have expected that. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Because that was our, vi- our Bible, DJ magazine, uh, music magazine, uh, mix mag, um, uh, mix mag update. Uh, DMC, you know these were these were the Bibles. Like we would read it cover to cover, and and it was quite the 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 influence that that the reviews editor had <laughs> was quite <laughs> profound um, on on a lot of careers. So it's amazing that isn't it? Because I mean, one of the things that I've discussed on this on the show before is like how how reviews have actually declined so much in yeah. the music press. I almost don't. I pay any attention to to reviews anymore because I right. I just, yeah, I mean, it's almost like they're an afterthought now. They almost yeah. like don't don't exist. But I mean, you're completely right in saying that this was a crucial thing up until not that long ago. Like certainly ten years ago, it was still a big deal. I think. Yeah, and 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 there was a lot like the, the journalists around at that time were really heavily into it and could write. They actually. Um, had something to say, and the the reviews were very intelligent in nature. Where over the years, it just became this this game where, like, obviously you put out a record, and and it, you know your your publicist sends out like uh, the pitch, and what happens now is everything that is mentioned in the pitch just gets paraphrased into like a review. Right. And uh, and you're reading it, or like you get excited when your publicist sends it to you, and you think like whoever wrote it is going to have like his or her own opinion about <laughs> what what they've been sent, and then like everything I've gotten so far on my first single right now has been a paraphrase of exactly what we sent out, yeah. which I think is a joke, <laughs> like a complete joke. And if I if I hadn't lost all faith in music journalism uh, some years ago, I have now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is this is this is a, a topical uh, discussion for for, uh, for the show again because I've I've moaned long and hard <laughs> about music journalism. Yeah. Um, but what what was the so so what was the turning point for you? You, you mentioned this is the final straw, but what was the uh, what was the turning point? You mean like in terms of uh, success? Or? No, no, no. I mean, I mean in terms of your uh, disillusionment with music journalism. I'm still staying uh, on this for a moment. Oh, the turning. Okay, so we're still talking. Uh, I don't know. You just—it's it, like gradually you just start seeing um, like less informed reviews. Um, you feel like uh, someone's just trying to fill content um, for for whatever it is that um, mm. whether it's online or print. Uh, sure. 
No, I was like, I just think back to like those early years um, in DJ Magazine. I, I loved Straight No Chaser. Like I actually contributed charts to Straight No Chaser. That was one of my favorite magazines because of how much care um, was taken in terms of how it was put together. The art direction, I think Swifty was like a big um, graphic designer and he was doing work with Talking Loud maybe and uh, maybe even Moax, I'm not sure, but he was, uh, I believe he was heavily involved in, in, uh, in Straight No Chaser magazine. And I just thought that was so beautifully put together. And I feel like over the years, um, everything just became more homogenized and, mm. and mundane. And there was just less and less care taken. Of course you find, and I learn about this all the time through, through whatever publicist I'm working with, or if I see like a, a some, you know, friend like Richie Hodden on the cover of some magazine I didn't know before and I dive into that publication, whether it's online or print, and discover that it's actually a very beautifully put together uh, magazine that, you know, is, isn't released too many times a year. And, and so it still exists, still out there, but like, you know, on, on a general scale, like uh, the dance music press has just gone to shit to put it mildly yeah um so i yeah I, I had a long conversation with melissa taylor from taylor communication about this we kind of had a bit of a back and forth because she was um defending <laughs> defending the institution to an extent and she made this sort of quite reasonable point that like actually social media going back to social media um like just just the ubiquity of opinion and the ability of people to voice their opinions now has sort of crowded the marketplace a little bit, um, and 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 meant that like there's just the competition for eyeballs means that the you know, resources have have dwindled and you know writers don't get paid what they used to and all of those things I think are, are fair points. But like, why write? I, I was at a. <laughs> I, I always say this. Uh, Sometimes I draw comparisons to food. You know, I love food. Like, everyone has a choice. Like, a chef has a choice to make um, good food <laughs> or horrible food. Like, why would uh, some online or print publication choose uh, to, to put out, like, like, just mundane bullshit reviews just to, to fill space right. um, when they could write something good. Like, why do it at all? Like, the question has to be asked, like, why do it at all if you're not going to do your best? Like, do your best work? Well, I mean... Like, well, what, is, what are they contributing uh, by doing... This is my, this is my exact uh, re re reaction. Yeah, why, Melissa, why, right? not, why not just pack up and go home? Like, why are, are they adding... It's like, you know, it's like having to sift through tons of bad records um when you're shopping for stuff online um the point that i made was you know if if as musicians we said oh you know we're not getting paid as much so the quality of our music is going to go down yeah. i'm pretty sure like the average music journalist wouldn't wouldn't look upon that too favorably <laughs> you know exactly it's it's exactly that it's like uh yeah um, yeah, it's just uh, there's too many people making music, so uh, why why make an effort to do anything that's going to rise above, <laughs> you know, uh, just some bass lines and 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 drum 
sounds. I don't know. I, I don't get it. Like I don't. I don't buy that. I'm sorry. Like if you're gonna if you're gonna put pen to paper, uh, make sure you have something good to say. Yeah. And make sure whoever you're giving that pen to and paper is able to express uh, a, a, a unique like opinion. Mm. You know, uh, and, and you know, and 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 um, express some sort of intellect. There should be some sort of like intellect behind those opinions. Yeah. In being able to, you know, not everybody can. I'm I'm not. I, I don't articulate well <laughs> what I'm trying to say. I kind of push push what I'm trying to say through the music uh, and and my performances as a DJ. But there are people that are extremely articulate they're able to articulate like what maybe a, a producer wouldn't be able to in in words mm-hmm. um why not find those people and mm-hmm. give that pen and paper to those people like why give it to someone who doesn't know how to do it who whose only ability is to paraphrase right <laughs> it's just mind-blowing right. anyway <laughs> i think we've gone yeah on yeah, yeah yeah <laughs> Right. Okay. So, um, going back to the nineties, <laughs> what <laughs> what we didn't cover actually, what I didn't ask you for clarification on is how Deep Dish came about in the first place. Because you've re- been referring to yourself yourselves mm-hmm. in you know what you were doing there, but um, how did you and Shiram start start working together? And yeah, how did how did the thing come about? Um, we were actually um, we were introduced for the first time by like a mutual friend who was who went to uh, university with Sharam. Uh, he was like a family friend and obviously being friends with Sharam and going to university with him, he was going to a lot of the, the house parties and other kind of parties that Sharam was doing. And he also, uh, in getting together with me and my family, uh, you know, a few times a month, he kept tabs on what I was doing and he thought it would be interesting to kind of connect us to see if we could do something together. Um, and, uh, and yeah, we just, um, I, I actually don't know why, uh, I, I think back then you felt like there, there was strength in numbers, um, and you could achieve what you wanted to with the help of like a partner or or a group of people, like-minded people. So maybe that's the reason why I decided to become partners with Sharam, because prior to that, I was quite happy uh, going about my business as a, kind of a solo DJ and, and local artist, um, and and I had a very singular vision. Sorry, sorry, I was just asking. Did you have the name Dubfire at that point? Yeah, I had the name Dubfire, uh, and and I got that from the Lee Scratch Perry song. Right. And, okay. And also, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it wasn't like it didn't stick until I saw. I remember reading the credits. Uh, I, I used to be obsessed with just reading credits of like albums. <laughs> um, the the first Soul to Soul album, uh, there there was a credit to someone named Mark Dubfire. Right. Okay. I remember, and I thought that was just I, I was like, wow, that's actually like in someone's name, so I could use that um, yeah. as my name. <laughs> and so it just it just kind of stuck. Um, and I can't remember if I if I ever had like another name that I was being advertised by. I think when I took on the name Dubfire in those very early years, that's when I started to really start playing publicly and, and people were putting my names on, my name on flyers and stuff. 
Um, yeah. yeah, so then um, he and I met and uh, we kind of clicked. There was something interesting uh, happening musically between us. Everybody was noticing, all of our friends. Then I, I was already, I had kind of the connections and the know-how um, in terms of like the music making process. So I built like a little studio uh, or maybe I even had a little studio that I was dabbling, uh, uh, tinkering around with, with stuff in. Um, and there was also... I'm sorry, sorry I mean, let me interrupt you there. Were you self-taught or did you take some classes or like how did you learn that side of it? I'm in thinking back to those early years, I'm pretty sure it started with my friendship with BT, Brian Transo. Oh, right. Okay. He, yeah. And then we, he, he and I were in, um, I think we were, in, we were initially in junior high school together. So seventh oh, were you? grade. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. Right. And he was, he was quite popular. He was a good looking kid, very popular. And we got to know each other because of our interest in music. Um, and I quickly realized that he's a classically trained musician um, and uh, very much loved electronic music, like Howard Jones, Thomas Dolby, people like that were like his, his idols, Depeche Mode, mm. Yaz. Um, so we struck up a, a very close friendship immediately. And Brian had a ton of gear in his bedroom studio right. that we messed around with. And I think he gave me the... He had the equipment. The, back then, the equipment was very expensive. Um, he had it because uh, he knew from an early age that he wanted to be a musician. Like, there was no doubt about really? that. Okay. Or, or there was no, yeah, there was nothing else that he wanted to do or be. Uh, and back then, none of us, like everybody else, had no idea. We were completely clueless about what we wanted to be when we grew up. <laughs> yeah, like normal kids, right? Like normal kids, yeah. But he knew from an early age. And I think I was drawn to that, you know. Like, so hang on a sec. What, so what kind of kit did he have? He had a lot of... Um, he had like Roland synths, like the whole, like literally the entire line. Right, um, okay. Roland drum machines, 303. He had a lot of Yamaha gear. Right, the, the full the Yeah, full Yamaha DX7. He had a lot of Yamaha drum machines. Um, he had like a little Atari... Atari computer that he was using as a sequencer. Yeah. Um, he was just a complete genius nerd. And looking at him and being friends with him, I, 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 you, you wouldn't know it. But when you saw him <laughs> right. with his machines, yeah, when you saw him sit at the piano or when you saw him with his machines, like I don't throw the word genius around too often. Um, but Brian, I knew from first kind of going and seeing his setup and, and watching him play the piano and watching and watching how into the the gear he was, um, I knew that he was like kind of a savant, like a genius. Mm. So we just um, we started playing together, and, the, and he'd just come into town. He moved from I can't remember where it was, but he didn't know too many people, and and, and um, I introduced him to my friends, and we became fast friends. Um, over our, our love of electronic music and started working together in his home studio and eventually collaborating um, after Sharam and I uh, formed, formed Deep Dish and, and the record label. Um, Brian, up until that point, hadn't been released anywhere yet. Hmm. Um, and it was through 
the early collaborations that we did with him that we released uh, on our label and on Tribal America that Sasha like took a notice of his musicianship and um, and then I think I believe Brian did I don't I don't know, I don't know if it was the, the record for Perfecto he, he did something that really caught Sasha's attention yep. and then I think Sasha did a remix of one of his songs um, and Sasha was doing those really long drawn out uh, intro <laughs> um, remixes that were like 15 minutes long or something like that uh, back then um, kind of mapping out that that blueprint progressive house sound and and Brian was was someone Sasha really was constantly name checking and keeping tabs on and, and eventually collaborating yeah. with so yeah it, it took a it took a yeah someone from the UK as well <laughs> for, <laughs> right. for Ryan to gain um, and and also us you know we benefited from that as well that association for for all of us to kind of gain uh, an international fan base okay so um Back to New York clubs. Mm. Um, you mentioned that, like the the level of attention to detail was pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. And was there a? I kind of get the impression, and do correct me if I'm wrong here, but I kind of get the impression that there was a bit of an arms race with with that, and there was a bit of kind of competition between the clubs to see who could do the most ridiculous thing. Like, I mean, the uh, the DJ booth at, at Sound Factory coming to mind as a particularly Kind of, kind of excessive, um, probably in a good way, but but excessive uh, example of that. Is that a fair comment? Uh, I mean, I, I I don't. The excess had to do with, um, like, you know, the the kind of voguing clicks um, that were a part of the image of a particular club. In in DC, we had a club called the Vault, and there was a night called Kindergarten. And there was a, a DJ, resident DJ named Jean-Philippe Aviance. And then there was the House of Aviance, which were all the, the drag queens um, and, uh, and a lot of the, the local gay community who were part of that clique who, who would um, sort of like, they, they were heavily involved in the, in the creative art direction mm. of, of the club, in, in the flyers, in, in the decoration. Um, in, in being there from beginning to end, controlling like the atmosphere, uh, the performances. So there was a lot of that going on, I believe as well, in various clubs in New York. Um, there, there were the, you know, there was, there was that, and then there was like just the dancers. Like New York had a lot of just dancers who would create like a dance circle in the middle of the dance floor and, and really, really like show off their dance moves, which, kind of came out of the whole breakdance culture um, in the 80s. Mm. Um, so each club had, I guess, by virtue of who gravitated towards that club, that particular club, and, and the residents that they had, um, it, it kind of dictated what, what image they had. But they were, I, I can't imagine that they were like, it, it didn't feel that competitive. Right. It just felt like you had more choices. Like, I, I don't feel like, I think there was more competition um, with labels than there were with, with the actual right, clubs. Okay. Um, and 
you know, which artists were exclusive to which label and who was getting screwed by which label and stuff like that. There was a lot of that. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't have necessarily thought that. Can you tell me a little bit more on that? Well, it's just, uh, you know, people getting ripped off with, with royalties, um, you know, getting their masters stolen and, and released under different names. And <laughs> right. yeah, I don't remember the specifics, but there was, there was a lot of um, shady, you know, business dealings that were going on yeah. with artists and labels. Um, but in, in club culture, I, I, I'd never remember it as being anything other than just like, you just had an abundance of choice and people would go club hopping. Right. You know, so you'd bounce around from one club to another. It wasn't like you went to one club, uh, like like people do these days. They kind of just go to one one club because they want to hear one particular style of music that a group of DJs represent. Yeah. Um, whereas I, I'm still hopping from one club to the next. I'm going to <laughs> the Ushuaias to see like, you know, like Mike, <laughs> just to see what's going on. And then I'm kind of friends with with people from from wide variety of genres and i like to go and just kind of like see what's going on in different scenes you know yeah totally um <laughs> it, it's really interesting doing that actually because it can be quite it can it can be very easy just to kind of get stuck in your own little wheelhouse yeah there and it's definitely healthy to avoid that so um my question was going to be you guys eventually got your residency at Twilo, which was the club that came out of Sound Factory. You mentioned near the top that Hideaway was the kind of like the key turning point for you guys. It was the big tune that really kind of sort of broke you out. Is that that's I'm right in saying that, right? Yeah, there there was a few other remixes um on labels like Eight Ball Records, mm. uh on uh, casual records like you know US like there were certain labels at the time in, in the U.S., New York, Chicago, and stuff that were really revered globally. So I think that mm -hmm. that helped project our name uh, across the pond to you guys. Um, but it wasn't like until we did that remix for, and I was licensed um, by Slip and Slide um, yeah. from a label that had initially released it in, I think, New York. Uh, DeLacy, like there was an original release of DeLacy Hideaway and then Slip and Slide stepped in and licensed it. There was a lot of licensing going on back then. And then they asked Sharam and I to remix it. And the kind of spin that we gave it was very European kind of, there was a very, very European kind of sensibility to it. And I think that that's why it was kind of embraced um, initially by by people, you know, from the UK. Yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was a huge tune, I remember. Germany and Holland and stuff, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah man. I remember I remember hearing it out and I remember reading about it and, like, the, <laughs> the the coverage in the press of it was, like, pretty kind of breathless, right? It was it was yeah. definitely, like, like this is a huge deal. And, and fair enough, because it's a, it's a really, really great track, obviously. And I have played it, you know, in my sets in certain places. I've played it in Panorama a few times and it, you know, it really goes <laughs> off properly. Yeah. It's great. So, yeah, so I'm also, I was asking about your getting into your stride as sort of like big DJs, as it were. And the question I wanted to ask you was about the, like, about the, the DJ booth in, 
in Sound Factory, what became Twilight, because this has long been a sort of area of fascination for me. Can you just tell me about what it was like in there, please? Yeah, well, we actually, play, before uh, Sound Factory became Twilo, um, there was a guy named Mike Binger kind of running the Sound Factory uh, that we became friends with because we kept, we, we, we'd, we'd go with friends who knew him and he was a bit of an, I mean, he had a reputation of being a bit of an asshole. Um, but somehow he took a liking to us, and before it became Twilo, he booked us to play Sound Factory. And we played from, we thought we were gonna play from like a different booth, but we actually played from Junior Vasquez's booth, which was like a little apartment, if you can imagine. <laughs> like, a, it was like a two-level, it was like a two-level. Can we put this into context for the, <laughs> like, for the listener who's not quite aware of like who like Junior Vasquez like, just was at that stage, right? Because he was just this institution at that point, right? And he'd had this enormous thing built for him, correct? Yeah, J- Junior was uh, a gay house DJ uh, with a residency at Sound Factory. And Sound Factory had like a 24-hour license and Junior would play open to close. He would play maybe, you know, a typical night would, would be like 18, 20 hours, <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe longer. Um, and obviously, if you're going to do that, you need the most comfortable booth that you can. And you need a booth that can double as like, I guess, an, an apartment. I guess that's, that's what their thinking was. Um, no other booth in New York City looked like that. Um, but he played from like kind of a, a mezzanine area. So the booth was two levels. Um, it had like a living room. It had, I think two bathrooms. It had a shower. <laughs> um, and then it had a door that you walk through and then you were in the booth and the booth was massive and had his entire record collection there. And he kept his collection there uh, locked up. Right. So it's not like he, he would bring it uh, in every week, he he just kept his entire record collection there, and then you know, when he did needed to add to it, that's that's what he would bring. But that's that was quite typical of uh, clubs all over the U.S., um, especially clubs that had like a solid reputation with with um, residents who were who were kind of revered. Like they kept their records at the club locked up, and you'd come in and you'd have like maybe a couple of shelves for your right. you know, one or two record bags that you'd carry with you. Um, and every once in a while, if the resident was there um, and respected you, uh, he would let you play from his record collection. So, so that right. happened a lot okay. as well. Like we'd, we'd turn up and, and the resident would be there and the records were not covered. Uh, and we would ask, or he would, he or she would, would say, uh, you know, if you guys want, you can feel free to <laughs> play from my collection. <laughs> and, and there was always stuff there that we didn't have access to, you know. Uh, there was like record pools at that time, like kind of a, a membership-based membership uh, community where like you, you pay uh, to get access to promos, upfront promos. And a lot of promo records at that time included various dubs and other versions, uh, instrumentals and, and things like that, that never made it out commercially. And of course, back then, the, there was no streaming, there was no digital, whatever, like you needed to have that physical record to be able to have, you know, the, yep. the music. Um, so everybody was after the physical copy and 
people were after the white label or the double or triple pack promo. Um, yeah, that's crazy. So it was, it? A, yeah. it, was, it was just an interesting time. I mean, I'm just kind of, it, it, for me, it's a trip down memory lane in talking to you about it because uh, it's been so long um, that I've had to think about it. But, uh, you know, every once in a while, you, you, over dinner or whatever, you, you, you start talking about the old days with, with different people and, and start kind of retracing um, the, the roots to, to where we are today. And it's, it's, it's always fascinating to think back to that era. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one more question that I um, forgot to ask, re- just regarding the, the clubs. Like, to what extent was door picking a thing? Like, to what extent was there like heavy door policies on these clubs, and what was that? And, w- and w- where those did exist, which I, um, I'm assuming they did to an extent. What were they based on? Yeah, I mean, the the when, when I had my first um, real residency was at a space called Exodus here in DC. Um, obviously you would see what they call face control. Um, I, that, that started, I think with like studio 54. Mm. Um, but that was quite normal in most, if not all New York clubs, they were, you know, the, the people at limelight, uh, sound factory, um, they really tried to create the correct atmosphere inside. And so that meant um, putting someone uh, outside who could identify people that could bring a certain vibe um, through the doors and and onto the dance floor. Mm. And I think in many ways, obviously you couldn't get away with that too often these days (laughs) um, without infringing on someone's rights. Um, But back then it sort of made sense um, it probably unfairly weeded certain people out who deserve to be there. But I think, and I don't know if this is true or not, um, but maybe that's why a lot of those clubs are so revered and, and people think back fondly on their experiences there um, because there was the right group of people inside that contributed to the atmosphere. Um, and I, 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 yeah, I, I don't know. It, it, it you know, it's a, it's a question. I think we should ask a lot of the people that were in charge of letting people through the doors or, or own those clubs. You know, and wh- whether whether that was uh, successful or not. That that kind of weeding and filtering out. Well, I mean, like the example to to point to now, I guess is is the Berghain. And oh yeah, uh, um, <laughs> you're right. Yeah. <laughs> But actually, like it's pretty the best common, example. It, actually, right? <laughs> it's pretty common in Berlin generally. Like, and it's mm-hmm. it's kind of a bit, it's a bit of a tradition going back to this period that we're talking about in Berlin to have have a door picker. But but in, obviously, Berghain is the the famous one, and it's almost part yeah. of the it's part of the experience now. Is has know, anyone the, been? The, has any of the door staff been interviewed? Uh, on, you know, on I, I how, think, how they choose uh, who who they let in or not. Yeah, I I think Sven, the guy, you know, the, the, the dude with the tattoos. Yeah, Sven. Like. I think he has, yeah, I, I think he has, but I, I, I haven't read it. I haven't read what he said about it. I mean, I know from talking to the the guys that work there that it's quite intangible and it is largely at the discretion of, you know, the guys who they have there. I mean, I think definitely a lot of it 
is to do with sexuality like it's supposed to be a gay club yeah and you know a lot of it is just making sure that it stays like that yeah um so if if they think you're straight then it's definitely you know 50 50 at best you know just regardless of anything else you know yeah, and how many times have we been at a club and and we just look at certain people and we're like oh god there's they're they're trouble <laughs> they're going to be trouble yeah, trouble yeah, so i guess totally, i guess instinctively we we all kind of know maybe on some level we we know if someone's is going to be trouble um and and we don't obviously want to let that person in. You know, it's like a yeah, vibe. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's there's something to be said for it. But I I think like you know what you said, what you said about sort of rights and also, especially these days, the, the possibility for you know people to take it the wrong way. Yeah. Um, because I mean, no one <laughs> no one is going to like getting pulled out of a line and said no, not tonight, mate. Yeah. Not for you, without any particular reason. Because because you know that's basically what it is. It's just like you know this is just not it's not for you yeah um and so and sometimes that's just the truth yeah um but but the reality is that burkine would not be burkine now if they didn't have a serious door policy because it's you know it's a world famous venue and you know they could fill it many 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 times over no doubt every weekend but it would not be the same thing yeah you know without that element of of select selection of a door just when you say selection it just sounds bad doesn't it you know it sounds bad but like and i'm just thinking um uh for Miami Music Week in March, uh, I had a, a lot of shows, and one of the shows I had was like a fundraiser for Cat, the Casbah Camp at Burning Man. And I played very early because I had a second show later that night uh, for, for Damien Lazarus's Get Lost. And um, so I was playing super early. There was like maybe five people uh, on the dance floor. Seth Troxler was playing after me. He was just kind of hanging out, milling about, or whatever. Um, and, and I see this this guy like in a see-through top as flamboyant as you can be just going crazy on the dance floor and I just thought his vibe is so infectious I'm like I want to know you who are you come here right you know I invited him into the DJ booth gave him drinks Uh, my girlfriend was with me so while I'm playing she's talking to him and she's like oh my god this guy has the best style and he's so cool (laughs) guy named Guillaume Uh, and then we see him uh, later. He turns up uh, at Get Lost on the dance floor. And I'm like, oh my God, what are you doing here? Come <laughs> c- come into the booth. We get him a wristband. He comes into the booth and he just elevates the, the mood in the entire place, including mine. Right. And I played one of the best sets um, I've ever played <laughs> right. directly as a result of him like me recognizing that he's got a certain vibe that he's brought to the space and, and that extended to, to me and how I was performing. And I wanted him to, to be in, the, in my space, in the DJ booth. Like he was the only one that was kind of allowed into my personal space. You know, we all have our, our personal space um, that we try to protect within the booth with, you know, surrounded by, while you're still surrounded by all the, uh, the entourage and hangers on and other people that have accessed the booth and and he he was allowed in my personal and he just just elevated the whole scene so maybe there is something to be said about and you know like the the people that you choose and the reverse is always true right sure yeah i mean like some of the wrong people can destroy an atmosphere completely i can't tell you how many times i've kicked out some of my best friends um who are around me and every time i look at them they're like on their phone 
They're looking right. down and on their phone. And sometimes I'm on stage. Like sometimes it's not a, a DJ booth. I'm on stage and I, you know, I'm one of those artists that I like to be surrounded by people. I don't like to be completely like alone on stage. And I'll let my friends in and then they kind of uh, are on their phones and everybody in the audience can see that because they're on stage. They're like on a platform, yeah. on a riser, <laughs> they're elevated. And that, that drives me crazy. And, and they really make, uh, they, they create kind of a negative energy around me that I quickly have to do something about. I mean, the truth is you're part of this show. Exactly. You're part of the show if you're in that environment, right? Totally. Like, and you need yeah. to be taking that into account. I mean, I've, I've, I've done the same thing, you know, like, and sometimes it <laughs> yeah. is your best friends who like have this kind of sense of entitlement. You're like, no, 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 hang on a sec. It's, it's yeah. not like, like, am I that boring that you get it? Yeah. You got to be on your phone the whole time or, or, or is it just <laughs> like, is it the, the, the pull, you know, of social media and, and how ingrained it is? I mean, is those things are addictive, thing. right? Yeah. Yeah. Let us know. Excuse. Yeah. Okay, Twilo, tell me about. Um, did we cover? Did we cover face control? <laughs> I think we pretty much did. Yeah. Um, tell me. Okay, so Twilo, as I mentioned in my conversation with Levon last week, um, Twilo was a really big thing uh, in the UK because of the Sasha and Digweed night, and everyone read about it, and everyone kind of read these stories about Sasha and Digweed like taking over New York and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, and Levon said that that was true, actually, or certainly true to an extent. But tell me about the, the venue. How much did they change it when they, like, the Sound Factory closed and, and they opened this new venue? So can you tell me a little bit about what it was like as an actual place? Yeah, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, they converted uh, Junior's two-level booth into like where the lighting rig was or lighting controllers were, were, were there. Mm. Um, and they moved, they created kind of like a slightly elevated DJ booth area directly across uh, from where the old booth used to be. Um, and I remember we kind of had a semi, we had like, we were, I think we were playing like four times a year. So we opened to close. We sort of had a little residency there for, for a brief, brief period of time. The Sasha and Digweed residency was quite famous. Um, maybe even, I know Danny Tenegli had a residency. Um, yeah. maybe even Paul Oakenfold was playing there regularly. Um, but I remember they, they had a Yuri mixer that we were playing with and the sound guy had some sort of a locking mechanism on the master volume and the EQ section of the Yuri mixer that had to be, um, there was like this metal thing that had to be screwed on for the DJ playing before to not be able to take it past a certain volume oh or to God. be able to adjust the EQ uh, past a certain point. Um, and then they would take that off when the main DJ or the resident DJ would go on. And it was so, it was such an awkward thing. Um, but it was something that was known. Um, and, it, 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 you know, every, every, every DJ coming into that situation, like opening for the resident, whatever, um, kind of expected that. But um, it was a constant source of frustration and they would always joke with us about it. I guess the, the equivalent today is like sometimes you go on 
before the headline guy who's invited you to play on that branded night. And the minute they go on, the volume is twice as loud. Yeah, yeah. So magically become 60 V loud. Magically. Right? It's just like- <laughs> yeah. And the whole time, like, you know, you're playing, you're, you're asking your tour manager or you're noticing, I mean, you're noticing that like the volume's not where it should be. And, and, you know, they're asking the sound guy and the sound guy saying, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, you sound great out there. Everything's great. Don't worry. We got you. Everything sounds good. And I, I would send my tour manager out um, into the crowd and he comes back and I'm like, yeah, how's the sound? He's like, yeah, it's good. <laughs> you know, like not really. <laughs> and then, uh, and then you hang, uh, you want to be respectful to the, to, to whoever it is that booked you. Uh, so you hang for a bit afterwards when, when the main headliner goes on and, uh, and it's twice as loud and you're like, what the fuck? It's still happening. <laughs> it's just a different, it's happening like, you know, not in the same way as maybe it was at Twilo. But that was happening. That was the norm at Twilo. People have that in their contract, right? Like it's gotta uh, be. I'm sure, I'm sure they do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, but, but I mean, conversely, like we've all had the experience of the opening DJ going way too far hard, right? <laughs> so I guess totally. there's, there's something in that too. Well, if there was a way, uh, some sort of a tempo locking, <laughs> tempo <laughs> or genre locking mechanism that you can impose on the opening DJ, that would be like next level, right? I mean, I mean that's particularly true now. I mean, music's like yeah. seemingly sped up like 15 BPM in the last like three years somehow. And I don't know, it's like pretty, uh, that, that, that's, sort of, that's been a bit of a culture sort coming back to um, uh, like me, me playing in clubs for the first time in, you know, three and a half years or so. And just like you're seeing warm up DJs like chugging along at one, four, three BPM. And it's just like, whoa, yeah. whoa okay. okay. I mean, I was, I, I did a little funny thing on my Insta story uh, Saturday night when I was like beat gritting new tracks and one of the tracks that I, I threw into the deck to grid the original tempo is 169 bpm <laughs> <That's> like <drum laughs> and i'm bass. like wow <laughs> we are reaching absurd levels uh of of bpm right now um but you know it's uh i think what musically what what happens musically, I think, is a direct reflection uh, reflection of where the culture is and where we are as a society. Um, mm. And you know how, how you know because a lot of this music is is being appreciated and maybe on, on many levels made. You know, people like Face Fatal and stuff like it's made by really young artists. Um, and for some reason or another, they feel like the the typical tempo te- te- techno tempo isn't fast enough um there has to be some sort of a correlation between where we are as a culture and, and where they feel like you know the tempo should should be so are we i don't know are, are we more of a, an extreme do we have more of an extreme Culture, in some ways, yes, maybe. I don't know. I mean, it's got to be something to do with having everyone having sat inside for two years, right? That's got to have some bearing on it. But it was happening already before the pandemic, I remember. That's true, yeah. Because we we would talk about it quite a bit on our DJs and beers show because we just kept noticing that the BPMs were getting faster and faster. And 
Right. And I would play, you know, festivals and stuff with other techno DJs. I would play festivals with house DJs, like tech house DJs, who were playing like 132 BPM. Right. So like that that that's become like the new standard for house DJs, like 131, 132 BPM. And so techno has sped up as well. Everything's sped up. Yeah. I mean, I, I tend to think that when music speeds up, it's because people are running out of ideas and it's mm. generally not a good sign um, at a mm. broad level. I mean, that's a, um, a sort of pessimistic take, but I mean, <laughs> where, where, I, where I originally kind of got that from was drum and bass speeding up in the kind of late 90s into the early 2000s where you, it was like this, um, you know, obviously Jungle and early drum and bass was this super kind of vibrant, really, really inventive kind of the move, like movement in music. Um, and when, um, when like the rhythm of, of the music kind of got boiled down into that kind of two-step like drum and bass um, beat, which just took over everything, that just kind of enabled this kind of, ramping up of techno of uh, of tempos from like you know 160 to kind of classic jungle tech jungle um tempo mm-hmm. to like one the, the 174 thing which is like you know <laughs> enduring into now it's like but that's a pretty big shift yeah. right and it's and it's just i just felt like well this music definitely isn't as good as that early jungle stuff you know yeah <laughs> and the same is true in uk garage and just like loads of you know there's lots of other things and you know tenno has had that cycle going UK Garage was, was quite fast I remember right yeah the MJ Cole stuff like all, all that mm. early the Speed Garage <laughs> stuff yeah yeah was totally yeah. I mean that, 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 that definitely got quick but I mean Techno has gone through this cycle before right and and yeah. Minimal was a reaction against it right and yeah. Minimal is something which um, I wanted to talk to you about because I, I kind of associated your name with minimal, but I don't think that's quite right, is it? Because you go and you leave in DJ. A lot of people tend to, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think maybe because when I those early records that I released and the association and the friendship uh, with Richie Houghton, uh, mm. I think helped perpetuate that image. I guess that I was either a minimalist or uh, I maybe was bringing something new to the table, um, to the, to the minimalism kind of conversation, um, that was being spearheaded by Rich and, and his, his gang and, and many other producers around the world. So, uh, I think I was just there at that, at, at its peak. Um, and, and when it started to, to wane a bit, I just came out with certain records and, and remixes and stuff that like took it to to new direction. Um, and I don't know if 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 I I don't I don't necessarily know if I, I'm the poster child for <laughs> minimalist music, but because uh, when I when I especially when I was um, putting together the live show, I was kind of going through all the old um, productions and remixes and collaborations and stuff and picking everything apart and. Um, I guess on on some levels there there was a minimalist aesthetic and groove. Mm. And there was a you know there was a funkiness. There was a certain swing uh, that minimal music had. You know there was there was the minimalism of like basic channel, mm-hmm. um, which 
didn't have that swing at all. Yeah. It was, and the approach, obviously, you know this, if, if you know anything about like Mark, Mark and Moritz's love of like dub reggae, like they were, it was, it was firmly from the perspective of like an appreciation of like dub music. Um, whereas like minimalism and, and the Houghton kind of style, eventually during, during that particular period of time where, where I was uh, coming up, um, and doing my thing, it, it had a really, really heavy, heavy swing to it. Yeah. Um, it was super funky, sometimes a bit too funky <laughs> when you, <laughs> when you listen back to some of those old records and, uh, it, it was drug music, you know, it was, it was like druggy, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> druggy tech house. I guess. Yeah, definitely. I mean, looking back on it now, it really was quite heavily defined by certainly if, I mean, from the outside, my perception of it, cause I definitely wasn't involved in that scene at all, but the perception of it was definitely that it was drugs music, wasn't it? Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your sort of coming out of deep dish and into that then. So like, were you, were you into that sound? Cause it's quite different to the later deep dish stuff, right? Which kind of got popular and, and was, was definitely not minimal. So tell me about that. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I, I guess in, in many ways, the, the more successful that Sharam and I became with the Deep Dish project, the more we started um, to kind of fight uh, with each other, like internally about like who was bringing what to the table, who was pulling their weight and who wasn't. Um, we started to question um, everything. Um, and, and we were, I think we were, both going in opposite directions and recognizing that. And I, I started to have like the bigger kind of identity crisis. And I was asking the big questions, um, not just for, for us as deep dish, but, um, with, with, with myself, you know, I, I wasn't happy with where it was going. And despite all the commercial success and, and I just didn't feel, um, like I just wasn't comfortable in those circles, uh, the bigger we got. Mm. And I was always more interested and following like what was happening in, in, I I mean, I've always, always been wired that way, like always going against the grain and, um, being into the alternative side of things. And I was constantly trying to bring the alternative to whatever it is we were doing, uh, with deep dish. And after a while, I just got tired of, compromising and fighting and I felt like I'm not happy and uh, I'm not having fun and the only way to 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 do it was or, or to to I don't know to the only way to 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 go out there and find what I was searching for was to kind of break it up and no matter what the consequences were and um just try to reinvent myself as a solo artist, which was really hard to do initially. And I've talked about this in various interviews, like obviously with that level of success that we had, um, even among artists um, within the underground music community who were early kind of deep dish fans, based on the success that we had later, they had a lot of, um, hesitation in kind of embracing what I was trying to do as a solo artist. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, there was a, I mean, to this day, it, it's, it's going on. Um, 
some people just have a stick up their ass about me being the guy from from deep dish <laughs> right you know? yeah. no matter what it is no matter how innovative um i'm being as a solo artist and no matter what level of success i've had as a solo artist and where the records that i've made where they fit in in the halls of techno history you know i still get the purists who uh who just don't ever want to welcome me into their club which is fine um you know i i've, I've had to deal with that my whole life so it's right right it's right. uh yeah from an early age you know just just like trying to um you know like trying to to stand out um trying to like make friends in in american society coming from like a foreign country being sort of a refugee um not having a good grasp of the language or culture um never being the popular kid in school like i've always had to battle that um so this kind of extends to me and as adult as an adult uh and and me as a creative within our electronic music industry like there there's still doors that are going to be closed <laughs> and and clubs that i can't be a part of which is whatever you know it's, after a while you're just like all right well their loss <laughs> yeah sure i mean like a lot of people seem to have the uh, like the attitude that you can go from underground to mainstream but you can't go the other way no and it's almost like an absolute thing for a lot of people and i think we talked about on the show before about how techno in particular has a quite conservative streak to it yeah amongst um, the audience uh, amongst producers in terms of music, but also in terms of the audience and the way they perceive artists and the way they like their artists to be. And it can be quite unforgiving or can be extremely unforgiving, quite frankly. Uh, and if there is a certain perception um, around a given artist, it can be extremely difficult to to shake regardless of whether it's fair enough and regardless of whether it actually accurately ref reflects what that artist is doing at any given given point so yeah so i completely yeah very empathize <laughs> with very you. very true and and like and we, you know i'm guilty of that as well like i i remember um i wasn't as into this perspective as some of my friends were but like there was always artists like you know, that you followed um, when they were on like an independent label. And the minute, you know, you talk about artists selling out, well, what does selling out mean? You know, the minute an artist signed with a major, they, 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 they sold out, you right. know? <laughs> and uh, they're not cool anymore in your book and, and um, you're not gonna listen to them anymore. So I think that mentality still exists today and, and just, uh, uh, you know, it's just expressed differently. But maybe that's just the way we all are wired as a society you know i don't know yeah it's it's funny you put it in um the kind of sellout um using that term yeah like my sellout because <laughs> deep dish became successful and when i tried <laughs> right. to go back underground um <laughs> that's selling out is that's it so is funny. it is is it because i i sold out that i'm not who knows you know like <laughs> but it's quite possible it, it blows my mind it really blows my mind the extent to which sections of the audience are willing to kind of overlook 
like really egregious examples of like you know doing corporate deals and doing doing stuff with brands which which yeah which you know I sound like an old guy here but like you know when I was a kid would have been completely unacceptable for an artist that I was yeah. I was following right and and this just doesn't seem to be on the radar and again I think going back to what we were saying about social media a lot of this is a kind of generational thing right people are kids today are so used to like sort of brand tie-ups and like the, the most quote-unquote credible artists in hip-hop or whatever doing these deals with big fashion labels and big corporations which just normalizes it to an extent which is really difficult to understand yeah. for me and for like you know people of um you know of of of, of previous generations of, of music fans and the, like the, the notion of selling out in the way that me, me and you presumably understand it and certainly the way you just described it and that's exactly the way I would think about it too like it just doesn't seem to exist in quite the same way anymore which is really weird for me I don't know how you think about that <laughs> I think I agree yeah I've, I've, I've realised in my old age <laughs> I'm 51 now. I've just realized like um, to accept the things that, that I just can't um, really control. Sure. And, and, and what I can control, I try to do the best that I can as, as a creative to try to steer the culture and, and the, the underlying general perspectives that people have about whatever I try to steer it and sway it in kind of my direction. So, mm whatever that tends to be. But yeah. Otherwise you're, otherwise you just end up like a, like a, you go from a frustrated artist to like an angry old man. <laughs> so. Yeah. I've definitely felt on the, on the, on the edge of those two, two things. Right. Yeah. Um, anyway, we've been going nearly two hours. I've got, I've got an area that I, I mean, I have to ask you about. Sure. Which is not music related at all, but you mentioned it earlier. It's food. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, this, this is an area which we share an interest. Correct. Um, and I was going to ask you how you got into it, but like, I was thinking like, there's quite a lot of, um, there's a notable amount of touring DJs who get into this. And I was wondering, is, it, is this just a side effect of needing a hobby when you're on tour, like needing something to do? Which, and then this kind of expedient thing comes up where you're able to eat in these incredible restaurants around the world and have these amazing culinary experiences, which would just not be available otherwise. Is, 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 is it that, or is it something you've been, you know, is it something slightly more deep in your psyche perhaps? I mean, in, in the early days, um, I didn't see it as art. Like I didn't see it as like creative expression. Um, mm. in the early days it was, uh, you know, the promoter, we, we'd leave it up to the promoter, like in the early nineties and stuff, uh, to, decide for us where we would stay and where we would eat. And oftentimes that ended up being a really horrible hotel experience <laughs> and, and, and an equally bad food experience. Um, it wasn't until uh, I started to travel to Europe, to Italy, um, to Spain, where I started to really appreciate uh, the cultural aspect of food mm. to Greece, you know, like, so we would always try to ask for like the, 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 not the, the hip, uh, restaurant with, with 
like the supper club with a DJ playing, but like whatever, whatever was traditional and local. Cause we wanted, we felt like the only way to, um, get some sort of sense of where we were was through the food. Yeah, exactly. And hopefully that was like at the local restaurant, which, uh, really had like w- was expressing the culture through the food. So it started kind of that way for me. And then, when I started to go to gastron, I, I think it really it kicked off um, when I went to El Bulli oh, right, in yeah. t- 2010, 2009 or 2010. It was like a six and a half hour meal. Um, obviously, a few years before that, I was starting to get into uh, molecular gastronomy. It was coined, that, that word was coined mm. back then, but it was basically modern modernist cuisine. Um, started to get into it. I was following the chefs. Um, I was going to to the restaurants that that were representing that in the USA and and other parts of the world. But I'd always wanted to go to El Bulli, and finally I got like a the reservation uh, request was accepted, and 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 I went. It was six and a half hour meal, and it was one of the greatest. Still today, one of the greatest meals of my life. It was so good that I went the following year. Um, which is 20, yeah, so I, I must have gone 2010, 2011, uh, they announced their closing. That was the final year. And then mm. they decided to do like their greatest hits kind of menu. And it was an even longer dining experience. <laughs> and for me, I just drew so many comparisons with what chefs were doing. Um, you know, chefs who were, who were, who were making food on that level. Um, and, and how they, you know, how they carried out the tasting menu, um, and, and the order in which it was presented, how it was presented and plated, um, the, the, the ambiance, the, the, the environment that they created, whatever it, I drew a lot of parallels to like what we do as musicians and DJs. So I started to appreciate it more and more. And then I quickly realized in striking up, you know, friendships with the chefs, working at these restaurants that they, you know, for them, music was a huge part of what they did as chefs, you know, like the amount of time, you know, a lot of those chefs spent 12 to 18 hours in the kitchen. And the majority of that time is spent in prep. And the way they get through prep is by listening to, uh, you know, a lot of them, you know, everybody listens to different music, but a lot of them I found listen to, to dance music. You know, they follow DJs. Um, somehow they, that, that was their escape, you know? Um, and they, they also appreciated what, what we, you know, they appreciated that we appreciated what they were doing. There was like this mutual appreciation happening and, um, and that just, you know, made me go deeper down the rabbit hole of, of the entire kind of world of gastronomy. And, and then uh, I, I wanted to become a better chef at home you know, home cook. And, um, so yeah, the, the, the friendships deepened and now I spend a great deal of time after the gig, uh, going down the YouTube rabbit hole of just watching <laughs> cooking t- demonstrations, you know, um, or, or like after a long you know day in the studio, whatever, it's like the perfect kind of uh, brain reset for me. And I'm actually learning something as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I love cooking as well. It's extremely relaxing, I find. 
it's it's uh it's very therapeutic yeah it's like uh and I, it's one of the things that i i dove into at the beginning of the pandemic like i didn't know what to do with myself so i created a sourdough starter <laughs> right okay <laughs> and i said and i told myself well i'm gonna i'm gonna create this thing that i have to uh take care of and feed every day um and then I'm going to make sourdough bread uh, for, for me and my friends and family. And that's, you know, instinctively, I guess, I just naturally kind of gravitated towards that. And that was kind of one way to keep sane. And I quickly realized that there was many other DJs. I mean, Sasha, I don't know if you know this, but he was heavily into making sourdough bread. And when he saw like me post my photos, he's like, mate, I... I'm heavy into this and I have, I've actually got like a sourdough group on WhatsApp. Do you want me to invite you in? (laughs) So for like, you know, those, that year and a half, I was constantly like, you know, in this sourdough, sourdough bread group that Sasha had created, uh, (laughs) posting pictures and we were talking about recipes and things like that. It was just a, a coping mechanism for a lot of us. So, uh, Right. It was nice. It was nice to to have that as opposed to just being alone with my thoughts and as everything was unraveling, um, not you know have, not knowing like where where we were headed uh, with everything. It, it helped me like gain some traction on my life and keep me sane. Yeah, I mean, it was a rough period, man. It really was. Yeah. So just before we finish, just give me your <laughs> give me your top three restaurants. Then obviously Elbury is now long long since gone, but uh, current current top three. Okay, they don't, they don't have to be your top three, but like give me three good ones. <laughs> um, I have two close friends who are neck, uh, ex uh, Noma R and D chefs, um, mm. Jessica and Jose. Who the, when they left Noma, they were part of the team that created in- Inua in um, Tokyo. And um, during the pandemic, unfortunately, after getting two Michelin stars in the two years that they were open, uh, the owners, um, the partners, like didn't want to keep it going. And so all that, all the Noma guys, you know, who were there, kind of moved back to Copenhagen, uh, worked there for a bit. Some of them stayed, but Jessica and Jose um, moved to Ibiza, and they opened a restaurant called Nudo, which is incredible um it's lunch only uh sort of in the north of the island Mm. so um that one's up there for me um as well as also on the island funny enough there's a restaurant called john dal which is from rafa zafra it's an ex uh, el bully chef Mm. that's very very good and wow you would think that i would have something in barcelona (laughs) (laughs) um yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm always, I'm, I'm quite drawn to, yeah, I'm not going to mention Barcelona because I live here, but uh, that'd be too obvious. Um, he is a chef who's a good, who's become a good friend over the years, Nick Brill. He's got a restaurant in uh, Antwerp called The Jane. Okay. And I just think what he's doing there is incredible. I just saw in, from his posts that Ed Sheeran went there and apparently Ed Sheeran is a big foodie. Okay. So, so uh, I think he did two shows and, in Brussels, and uh, and he went to the Jane, and and it looked like they had a good time. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I really love going there. I really love his cuisine. Um, 
Yeah, at the end of the day, like, okay, it looks pretty, but is it delicious? And, and Nick's food in particular is absolutely delicious. Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the main point, right? That's kind of what it has to do at the end of the day. Just like our music has to be delicious. <laughs> delicious. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> totally, man. Well, listen, thanks so much for doing this. It's been great. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And yeah, the best of luck on, uh, on future episodes and, and the podcast in general. Yeah, that was Dubfire and a conversation which I found extremely interesting actually on many topics it was great to dig into that new york club scene in a little bit more detail particularly with the <laughs> revelations about junior vasquez's dj booth that was awesome and it's just great to hear ali talking about talking about his career and talking about his um experiences growing up and yeah he's an interesting guy a real kind of stalwart of the dj circuit he really lives the lifestyle as i mentioned at the top and um, yeah, awesome dude and a great episode. So once again, patreon.com slash scuba official. Thank you if you're on here now. If you're not, then we'd be eternally grateful if you did become a patron. You can do that over there on either of the two tiers that I described at the top of the show. That's about it for this week. Join us in the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord and follow the Spotify playlist, link in the show notes. There's an AMA episode for patrons up right now. And other than that, I will be back here same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving podcast. Thank you. Let's go, cool, wow.